You're listening to episode 28 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. He's Alex. I'm Tara. And after a bad week and some bad weather, it's a little gloomy in here. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for checking out another episode of Chirps. I'm Dara Wellman, as always, with Alex Crisofoli, and the Cardinals are currently trying to finish off what is now an 11-3 game in Atlanta, the first game of the series, which would be a nice turnaround from what we saw from them in the entirety of the homestand, really, except for maybe that 17-4 win that you threw in there in the middle. But Alex, this team's a little bit confusing right now as far as what to make of who they are. And I think everyone's sort of trying to figure out if we know what their identity is yet at this point, when you kind of piece together, I mean, we talked right after the the Cubs sweep and then we saw what they did the, the following week at home. It still wasn't great. And now we're seeing what they're doing against the Braves tonight. It's a weird sort of disconnect between maybe what they can be and what they were most of the last week. Yeah, they've been maddening. Uh, That's the word I would describe them. Uh, Sort of reminded me of, I don't know if it was going into the all-star break last year. I'm trying to remember, I guess I could have just looked this up before. Um, Who does that? Yeah, there was like a nine game (laughs) home stretch last season at a, during a pivotal part of the season. And I, if I recall, the games weren't that t- – like, it wasn't, like, a huge tough part of the schedule. And I remember a lot of people saying, like, all right, six and three, um, at worst five and four, and let's, you know, let's go from there. And then, you know, they started losing games. And they're like, all right, all right, you know, five and four. Ah, let's just salvage four and five. And I think they ended up going, like, three and six. That's kind of what this, this last weekend or this last week, I guess, felt like. Because, you know, you want to win those games at home. You really do. Like, I, I – I really want this to be a team that's really, really good at home like they used to be because this is going to be, you know, as, as we've talked about, this is going to be a really good division. And those are wins you want to bank early. You want to beat the Pirates at home. You know, you don't want to lose three or four of the Pirates at home because obviously the Cubs are just on a tear. I don't know if we ever talked about that. We obviously, uh, you know, reports of their demise were obviously <laughs> greatly exaggerated, uh, maybe by partly by me. I think I'm, mentioned that once or twice on on this show obviously brewers are going to be right there so yeah that was just a frustrating set of games especially with just the way they won and then you know i listened to your preview with liz uh i I don't want to mispronounce her last name uh yahoo sports uh, right liz rocher yes yes um and she talked about how like the phillies seem to either like kick a team's butt or lose big time. And I feel like that's exactly what the Cardinals did, (laughs) uh, you know, during that series. I guess they lost those two games to Pittsburgh, two to one. But the Philly series definitely went like that. And then that opening game against the Pirates winning 17-4 and then losing three straight. That was just, that was just not great. Yeah, and it's weird to sort of break down the last week because a lot of times on this show, we'll kind of pick a specific thing a particular player or a particular portion of the game, the offense or the the pitching or whatever it might be. When I think about this week, I think what was difficult for me as we were trying to choose a topic for tonight is that it wasn't really just one thing. 
<laughs> that seemed to be the problem or that seemed to be, well, at least this is still going right. I mean, the offense continued to struggle, but then it didn't. The starting pitching was good, but then it wasn't. <laughs> the bullpen looked like it has most of the year, except then it was bad for a couple of games. So it was just a weird week to really trying to figure out you know, what they need to improve for this series. Obviously, the simple answer is everything. Just play better. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't make for an interesting show. So instead of just picking one thing that we're going to talk about, we are kind of going to just talk this out and try to figure out what to make of this team, you know, 40 plus games into the season that has at times been the best team in baseball and has at times looked like they were maybe never going to win another game all season long. So Again, they're winning 11 to 3 right now in the top of the 8th in Atlanta. So all of this is sort of I don't know. What happens in this game tonight doesn't necessarily negate what happened last week is what I'm trying to say. So we still have plenty of room to talk about these things that were problematic and that continue to be problematic for this team moving forward. And I think one of the things that has been most frustrating is the starting pitching. A lot of people mentioned that when I asked on Twitter what we should talk about tonight. I've had mm. people ask me, is it time to make a, a change to the starting pitching? Um, almost every week since I started doing series previews this season. And that hasn't really changed. I mean, Miles Michaelis and Adam Wainwright right now are the strongest starting pitchers for the St. Louis Cardinals. One of those you could have predicted, the other not so much. And even tonight, Jack Flaherty has been good except for that one inning. So maybe that's where we start with this team. Let's talk about the pitching, whether it's those starters or some of the guys in the bullpen that were frustrating this week. How do you get more innings that are are clean <laughs> where they don't, you know, score a bunch of runs and then turn around and give those runs right back from the starting pitchers that the Cardinals have? Or do they need to look elsewhere? Man, I, I have no idea. I, I heard people say like, well, uh, you know, you don't need to look elsewhere when you have like all these internal options. And I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about, you know, guys down in Memphis. But, you know, why are we so certain people in Memphis are better than Dakota Hudson? You, you know what yeah. I'm saying? I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like if Dakota Hudson was in Memphis right now, he'd be one of those guys who'd be saying like, why look elsewhere when we have Dakota Hudson down there in Memphis? And, you know, Dakota Hudson just ha simply hasn't been that great. Michael Waka hasn't been that great. And think back to when we were kind of doing a preview for the team. This was the one thing we harped on. Yeah. And if we go through the course of the season and at the end, we're all looking back and being like, you know, that season really could have gone different had the starting pitching been better. Then I think the front office, whoever you want to say up there, should just get absolutely hammered. Like, we should not let them get away with that. And the way I look at it is we kind of have, like, this implied social contract with, like, the front office in that when the team is doing very well, when whether it's winning divisions, going to the World Series, winning pennants, whatever, we give them a ton of credit, whether it's deserved or not, um, you know, how much it's on them, how much on the players, whatever. We, I'm happy letting them, you know, take their victory lap, you know, getting all the great press that they deserve. But the other side of that is they get the blame too, especially when, you know, I, I, it seemed obvious that there were, there were potentially some problems here. It's not like we didn't know until the very last second that Carlos Martinez wasn't going to be available or at least available as a starting pitcher right. or, you know, at the beginning of the season. 
And, and it might be very fair to say, well, this is, you know, you're waiting to, uh, you know, you're going to use hindsight to see how this season unfolds and then either criticize or not criticize the front office based on the starting pitching, um, kind of a results-based analysis. Well, yeah, that is what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I, th- I think that's totally fair. Um, you know, I would, I, like, I, there's been plenty of years in the past where I've praised them for how seasons turned out. And I think it's fair to do the opposite. I mean, we certainly weren't the only ones saying like, you know, and this is when we thought Michaelis and Flaherty were pretty solid at one, two. And, and, you know, they still, you know, Michaelis uh, has looked good his last two starts. Flaherty has, uh, I don't know. What do you think of Flaherty? You know, he had that start. He's interesting because he'll have, uh, he had that start last week where, uh, I want to say like in the fourth or fifth inning, he was only on like, you know, he had like 42, 43 pitches. Yeah. I'm one of those guys who starts like looking, you know, ooh, like like out of Maddox way too early than he should. And then he threw like 40 pitches the next inning, you know. Yeah. And the game just totally turned and, it, you know, got away from him. And it seems, you know, maybe that's some recency bias, but it seems like that kind of sums up a lot of Jack Flaherty starts we've seen lately. It does. And and I think, you know, I was looking at it tonight, including tonight's start from Flaherty. In his last three starts, he's only given up runs in one inning, but it's been multiple runs in that inning. And it's it's frustrating to watch because he'll look so completely in control. And then the second there's a little bit of drama, everything just falls apart for him. And for me, the thing I keep trying to find the the right way to say this, but it's almost like he wastes so many pitches trying not to get hit when there's a situation that's a bit of a jam that then he inevitably has to throw one down the middle and that pitch gets hit. I know Joe Schwartz did a piece on him over at the athletic today talking about (laughs) if you want the, the technical breakdown of what's happening with which pitches um, you know, his fastball is getting hit a lot more, particularly there are some lefty righty splits there that are interesting go read it all because I'm not going to try to recite everything that Joe wrote, but that's certainly part of it. But the frustrating thing to me is that he'll be fine for four innings when he's aggressive and he's throwing the pitches that he wants to throw and he's throwing them with authority. And then all of a sudden in a a situation where there's a little bit of, of trouble, it's like everything, everything that he was doing previous to that just disappears and he doesn't know how to do it anymore. And to me, that feels like less of a mechanical, here's what's going wrong with his fastball and more of a Jack gets in his own head a little bit, which is not something we saw from him last year. And maybe that was just the oblivious rookie in him last year. And this year he's thinking a little too much in those innings because then he'll come back and shut him down in the the inning after he gives up runs. So it just seems like there's a little bit of a, maybe a mental block right now when he gets in a little bit of trouble. And if he can get past that, then I think he's certainly capable of being that number two that we all expected him to be. One thing I think we did see from him last year, though, is that he he does seem to labor a lot through games. Um, yeah. You know, he, he, even last year, it seemed like, you know, he would be hovering around that 100 pitch count through six innings um, pretty often. Um, and I'm not enough of a pitching guru to, like, you know, diagnose what the problem is. But it, sometimes it just feels like, uh, you know, just trust your stuff a little bit more. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be nibbling with these guys. Like, like you have the advantage, like you're Jack Flaherty and he is a hitter who is not on par with a pitcher like Jack Flaherty. So just, uh, you know, throw your stuff and let's see what happens. Um, it, Cause it does seem like uh, at least the last couple starts, you know, 
what was promising for him right at the beginning is he wasn't walking many guys, but that's kind of turned a little bit the last few starts along with him not striking out as much, uh, striking out as many guys. So that's a little concerning, but obviously from one through five, he is not the, he's, he is not the main problem. And it's, it's more the Waka and the Hudson's. Yeah. And to your point, I always find it fascinating when fans will, you know, reiterate that this guy at at AAA is the obvious solution to whatever the problem is, because I mean, there's a reason that guy's at AAA, right? Just because he's, mowing down triple a hitters doesn't necessarily mean that's going to translate at the big league level austin gomber is a great example of that for me obviously what he's done in the minor leagues has impressed so many people myself included but what we saw from him in spring training wasn't that impressive and of course that's spring training how it you know translates to to real games we can all just sort of you know make our own assumptions there but i did ask joe schwarz specifically about austin gomber and i asked if the success he's had at AAA is more a result of him being that much better than AAA hitters or of an actual adjustment that he's made since we saw him struggle in spring training. And even Joe, who is maybe Austin Gomber's biggest supporter, said that it's mostly that he's just that much better than AAA hitters. So that's not a guaranteed improvement in the rotation either. We're looking at a guy who certainly has sky-high potential and certainly provides a bit of a different look being a lefty having that big curveball all of those things that make him so special but it's not as if it's a guarantee so yes there are internal options and those all could play a part in strengthening this rotation at some point if the cardinals were to make a change but it's it's hard for me to say yes they absolutely need to send Dakota Hudson back to Memphis and go with Austin Gomber or go with Daniel Ponce de Leon or go with Ryan Helsley who we've seen at times as well because there's still enough of an unknown with how those guys will react when major league hitters start to hit them a little bit more regularly, when they get familiar, when they have a little bit of tape to study and and all of those details. And it's, it's certainly not a guarantee there either. Now, something that came up this week is the addition of a starting pitcher via trade as in potentially Madison Bumgarner. Now there was some confusion or conversation at least about the fact that his no trade list includes the Cardinals. I would just like to reiterate his no trade list is entirely made up of contenders, which makes it very clear that his no trade list is very strategic in that it gives him the leverage to choose where he ends up going. So it's not as if the Cardinals are completely out of the equation. It just means he has to approve something like that. But to me, an addition of someone like Madison Bumgarner is maybe a little bit more of a quantifiable boost to the rotation than someone from the the Memphis rotation, just because they, there's a track record to fall back on. You know what they can bring to the table, and there's a little bit more a little bit more of a comfort level in expecting them to be able to to replicate that every five days. Sure. Uh, obviously, the only difference there is whatever we end up giving up will will right. hurt. Um, not necessarily on the field, but just like. Uh, in our heads, in our hearts, it'll hurt because, you know, players like Madison Bumgarner, even when we're not talking about, you know, a ton of years to get them, it's going to cost something in, in the way of prospects that will seem like a ton because that's just the way it works, you know, establish pitchers like that. So, yeah, I don't know what they do. I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what the um, cost would be for a pitcher like Matt. Yeah, excuse me, a pitcher like Bumgarner, but you ha- you would have to think it would be more 
than what we would typically see this team trade in the way of prospects. Like, like who yeah. was the last big prospect we traded? I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, remember how shocking it seemed when we traded uh, Kaminsky for Brandon Moss? Yeah. I mean, at the time, that was <laughs> like, I remember people, uh, national guys like Keith Law, um, you know, St. Louis guys being like, like, well, you know, what are the Cardinals doing, you know? Because uh, I, because I think Kaminsky was at maybe at that point as high as highly rated as he's been, or at least yeah. as highly thought of as he's been. I, I, I don't know what is he still in Cleveland system? I feel like he is, right? Honestly, I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I it may is there is there someone I'm totally missing in terms of a big prospect that. I mean, that, the that obvious traded. answer is Luke Voigt. But he, was kidding. he really a big prospect? <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm happy for him. Uh, yeah, you know, sure. I'm, I'm certainly Yankee Stadium's probably helped him a little bit because everyone always talks about, you know, the short porch there in right field. Um, he wasn't going to get the playing time, you know, in St. Louis with Matt Carpenter. He obviously wasn't going to get the playing time for training for Paul Goldschmidt. Now, there's some people who might say, like, well, wouldn't you rather, you know, pay Luke Voigt barely anything and get this production versus what we're getting from Goldschmidt. Like, no. <laughs> like Paul, <laughs> the like, answer is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul Goldschmidt is still Paul Goldschmidt regardless of what, you know, he and Luke, Va- Luke, excuse me, Luke Voigt's stats say up to this point. So, yeah, I just don't know if the Cardinals, you know, I, I just don't know if that's a move the Cardinals make. I really don't. But I would love to be proven wrong. And I'm not just talking about Bumgarner. I'm talking about Strowman. Um, right. You know, whoever else might be, uh, you know, might be in this in this bunch. And I think it's also important that we don't let the offense off the hook here either, uh, because, you know, hitters one through four tonight has been a different story. And that's been good to see. But it's it seemed like one of those weeks where whatever we needed, we were not getting whether it was pitching. um, Like if the offense showed up, then we weren't getting very good pitching. And if the uh, pitching showed up, like in those two one run losses to Pittsburgh. Um, of course, we had one run loss at the Pittsburgh. It seems like every game, you know, there's yeah. a lot, every game with Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, we're losing two to one. Yeah, th- then the offense wasn't just showing up. You know, Zuna's bat has cooled down. Obviously, Wong's bat has cooled down a lot since the first two weeks of the season. Carpenter, just oh, big sigh. I, I don't know what to say. Um, it still hasn't improved much because of his production you know there's been a lot of talk about getting him out of the leadoff spot and frankly i'm not necessarily against that right now curious what you think yeah i think this is an interesting conversation because to me it seems very simple to say look dexter fowler is getting on base like very few other guys on that roster are right now he plus he had a you know, lead off solo, solo home run in, I think, the fourth inning in tonight's game. Um, he's hitting the ball well. He seems to be in the best place he's been in a while. Put Dexter Fowler at leadoff because that's what you brought him to St. Louis to do. I like that in theory. What I'm curious about as far as your thoughts are, what do you do with Matt Carpenter then? Because when you look at Paul DeYoung in the three spot, Marcelo Zuna, for the most part in the cleanup spot, and, you know, Paul Goldschmidt is probably not moving out of the two spot. Where does Carpenter land if you take him out of that leadoff spot? Yeah, I almost wouldn't mind him seeing go all the way down to like fifth. Yeah, I really wouldn't. Um, and, and I don't mean that like permanently, but just like just to shake things up a little bit. I was looking at stats earlier today and he has, I believe, the second most um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, plate appearances with a full count in the National League uh, behind uh, um, Reese Hoskins. And, you know, that probably doesn't surprise many people when you watch Carpenter. He gets a lot of full counts. Um, but he also only has a 99 WRC plus in those situations, which isn't very good because a hitter, you know, a full count is still very much a hitter's count. Uh, yeah. That's well below average, <clears throat> certainly well below those other names who are up there um, with him near the top in terms of plate appearances with a full count. And, you know, I almost wish he would swing more. Y- you know, we always talk about how he's better than umpires. He knows strike zones better than umpires. And, you know, I, I believe there's been articles written on this that, you know, he more than anyone has, uh, or at least a lot has been victim to, um, you know, outside strikes, you know, called strikes by the umpire that weren't actually strikes. Mm-hmm. And that's great. He has a great batting eye. But the the problem is, it's still the umpire's call that counts you know we don't have still a strike yeah we don't have robot umps yet and so um i i totally get why he's uh and I, and I think it's a good approach i totally get why he's taking full counts you know he's batting leadoff he wants to get on base and he still does you know a pretty decent job of getting on base but yeah well i I shouldn't say a decent job he's hold on it's my job. turn to interrupt you Uh-oh. because colton wong who's not hitting well just hit a three-run homer. <laughs> well, okay. Well, it's my turn to interrupt you. He's still on a two-two count on my TV, but oh, there it goes. Well, <laughs> there I, it is. I am behind. There you go. There you go. What, is that his fifth? <laughs> is that his first one since uh, what is that? His fifth of the year? I think so. Yeah, it feels like his first one in a while. Yeah, it is the first run. in a while okay. for sure. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, I of course had to pause <laughs> to appreciate the Colton Wong three-run homer. Anyway, nice. continue. That's great. I, I think they're going to take this one, 14-3. to three. Oh, yeah. look, okay, As so long as it, it's the, not the only runs they score in the series, I'll be happy with that. The Cardinals have 14 runs, the Braves have three runs. The Cardinals have 14 hits, and the Braves have three hits. Cardinals have zero runs, and I mean zero errors, and the Braves have zero errors. So it's a little nice, perfect little century across there. All right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, actually, Carpenter's not doing that great a job getting on base. So he's only has like a 320 OBP, I think, coming in tonight or something like that. So I almost wouldn't, you know, put him down to a spot where there's not as much pressure to get on base. I'm not saying that's been his, that's like in his head or anything like that. And, you know, maybe start swinging at some of those pitches that are a little, a little closer. Uh, you know, who knows? Something good might happen. Now, I guess the flip side of that is, and they were talking about this, I want to say on Seeing Red, is that like, He's not hitting the ball, even when he is hitting the ball. It's, you know, the results haven't really been there. And not just talking about, you know, hits and stuff, but also contact. It's not like last year where, you know, he started off horribly and the analytics department told him basically, you know, don't worry about it. You're hitting the ball fine. Um, everything's going to be okay. Uh, and I, I think Mike Petriello wrote a big column about it last year, like, you know, a breakout was coming. That's what they were talking about on Seeing Red. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case this year. The hard contact is not happening quite like it was last year. So I don't know. Move him down, shake it up. I'm fine in putting Fowler up up top. He's been great. I mean, he has. I don't think he has the plate appearances to qualify, but I think he has an OBP that would rank him near the top five in the National League right now. So, and, and you know that kind of helps salvage the Fowler contract even more because that was the reason oh, yeah. why we brought him over here in the first place was to be the leadoff guy that kind of the Cardinals were missing because the leadoff spot, you know, we kind of wanted to move Carpenter down to a spot that more fit his new power surge that he found. So if we could get 
good production out of Fowler from the leadoff spot for a while. You know, I, I think, you know, I think a lot of people are already feeling obviously much better from last year. But I think if we got that, then I think people would start to feel pretty good about the contract as a whole. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how many people are still <laughs> opposed to Dexter Fowler being in the lineup. Um, it seems like there are other Wait, issues if you're still upset are, with, with Dexter these Fowler. These people are walking amongst us? Uh, these people exist. Who, who, yeah, these who people. are they? I want names. <laughs> I don't know. Twitter, man. Uh, I, don't, okay, okay, I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, Dex has been everything that the Cardinals could have hoped that he would be this year. And I think you're right. And I, I keep going back to this. The Cardinals brought him to St. Louis to be the leadoff hitter because they wanted to change things up as far as Matt Carpenter was concerned. Now, it didn't work out that way for a number of reasons. And I think the easy thing for a lot of people has been to fall back into this idea that Matt Carpenter can't hit out of the leadoff spot, which I've I've said, you've said, we've talked about this before. I refuse to believe that that's actually a thing if given enough time. Um, and without all the extenuating circumstances, that that wouldn't be uh, an issue for Matt Carpenter. But it would be interesting to see him down somewhere else in the lineup because it's been so long since that's been the case. One thing that that Mike Schilt has been very insistent on, and we've seen it pay off with guys like Colton Wong and with Marcelo Zuna and with Dexter Fowler, is this idea of having you know this this confidence in your guys to figure it out. And it's it almost seems like. It sounds a lot like what Mike Matheny often said, but it looks a lot different in the Mike Schilt version of what he's doing. However, that works out. I'm not totally sure. But the point is, I wonder, though, if Mike Schilt would do something that drastic with Matt Carpenter, take him from the leadoff spot, put him in the five spot without feeling like. I don't know, this is going to, all the people who think that Matt Carpenter is a head case who can't hit out of the leadoff spot are going to just love what I'm about to say. But without it sort of shaking any sort of confidence or any sort of progress that he's made this year. So I think that would, that would happen or that would be successful if Mike Schilt really is the kind of communicator that we are continually told that he is. And if he could sort of get Matt Carpenter to buy into this as a way to you know, make the team as a whole better and take a little bit of the pressure off of Matt Carpenter and and all of those things that would obviously be the upside of making a move like that. It, it really, as with so many of these things, to try to make this lineup work falls on the shoulders of Mike Schilt. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we weren't giving the pitching a pass. We weren't giving the offense a pass. Let's not give Mike Schilt a pass either. He did not have a very good week in my eyes or very good 10 yeah. days in my eyes. Um, I'm, I'm still mad about that Wainwright bunt. Uh, I believe that was what, last Friday night? Uh, yeah. Runner on first and third, one out, went down a run. No, it didn't look like Fowler on third base had any intention of trying. That, that, was, not, that was not a suicide squeeze by any stretch of the imagination from what I could tell. So, no. as I understand it, the plan was just to get the runner over to second base, so we could, could have run, so we could waste an out, have runners on second and third for Carpenter up. That's awful. I hate everything about what I just said. <laughs> I, I don't understand that at all. Even with a pitcher at the plate, uh, it just does not make any sense to me uh, whatsoever. But um, that's not what we. We're talking about right now, we're just talking about Schilt trying to get, uh, you know, whether or not he can move Carpenter down. And I think you absolutely can, especially if you have the, not only the 
you know, not not only the the stats that show up in the paper backing up that he hasn't been good, but if you have the analytics saying like, yeah, like your bash is not right um, right now. Well, you know, I don't think Carpenter has much leg to stand on to say like, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is a front to my, you know, self-confidence or to, you know, or, or to who I am as a baseball player. And I, and I don't think and, we've ever seen anything from Matt Carpenter that he would object to such a move like that. Right. So, And the, the flip side of that for me is that that's a better alternative to just taking him out of the lineup because it doesn't feel like this is a thing that just sitting him for three days is going to fix. He, he kind of has to play his way out of it, it, it or so it seems that's sort of how it's worked in years past. So at, at least this would be a way to keep him in the lineup, give him a chance to produce and to, to generate, you know, a part of whatever the offensive production would be as a whole. It doesn't take him out of the lineup. It just changes uh, a little bit of the pressure gives the guys who are playing maybe at their best right now a few more at bats per game and takes a little bit of the weight off of Matt Carpenter's shoulders a bit. So, uh, so there's certainly a way to sell it as a very positive move if that were something that Mike Schilt would decide to do. I'm just not convinced that he will at this point, although he has been asked about it a number of times in uh, postgame comments as of late. It sounds like it's something that's crossed his mind, but not something that he's planning on changing at the moment. But things can change relatively quickly in this game. But I do I want to go back to Mike Schilt because I agree. I think that this last week was very frustrating as far as he's concerned. And some of it had to do with like very strategic decisions that seemed very odd. And, you know, we talk about him as this this great baseball mind, and I have no doubt that he is. I think we've seen that a number of times. He studies the game. He knows the ins and outs of, of more of the analytic side of the game than I think most people expect of a manager like him. Uh, and and he buys into that and he, he sells why, it why do to we his team that, very well. Why do we think that he does know the analytics or that yeah, he doesn't? Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm saying I, – so I, I think why I'm excited about Schill is because of his connection with all these players and his um, – they seem to have his back. They seem to really like him. And, and I think that's almost more important than being a good strategist in the dugout. Um, not that that isn't important either. But – what? Why do we think Schill is a great, not not necessarily great, but what, why do we think he is more forward thinking on this stuff than perhaps his predecessor? I think for I'm me, I, lo- I often, just, uh, yeah. no, 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 yeah, it's a fair question because a lot of it I think stems from this idea that he's such a student of the game, right? And he he is so. Uh, he's spent so much time learning the game and the process of the game and, and what works and what doesn't. And as a student of the game, you're, you're always sort of soaking in all of this new information. I think it stems from a lot of that, but for me um, to sort of back that up, I, I listen to a lot of his post game comments Mm -hmm. and often in his analysis of what happened in a particular inning. Now he's not going to go into, you know, particular, (laughs) X's and O's numbers all over the place, but he'll often be really uh, intentional and and very analytical in the way that he explains, this is what we did. This is what we thought might happen. This is what we were prepared for. Here's what we really liked. Here's where it went wrong. And not that that's 
necessarily forward thinking, but it it seems like he has a really good grasp of the way that the game can work and then what keeps it from working that way if it doesn't. And and to me that's a really impressive thing to be able to communicate to a room of people who are really just looking for a post-game quote, but you can also you know, transfer that information in a really digestible way. So maybe it's not that he's, you know, the most forward thinking as far as, I mean, we've, we've all heard him basically say he would never use an opener. Um, so if you want it forward thinking, it, as far as that goes, mm-hmm. it's not Mike Schultz. We've seen the the bunting in the last week, which seems very old school, not so much the uh, the the new school forward thinking, analytically minded manager type decisions. Um, so there's it's a an interesting mix as far as like the old school George Kissel, he knows how baseball has been played for generations kind of guy with I think for me more than I don't know, maybe more than um embracing a lot of new philosophies. It's an understanding of how that information can be helpful and the ability to translate it. So I'm not sure if that actually answered what your question was, <laughs> but that's sort of, for me, what is interesting about Mike Schilt in the way that he processes and then explains what the process was um, in any given situation during a game. Let's talk about the um, Munoz bunt on, was that Saturday? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so I, I want to make sure I have the situation down correct. Was it the eighth inning and we're down one, runner on first, no out? Is that what we're talking about there? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually going to pull oh. it up just to make sure, but go on. Okay, so <laughs> in, until you tell me otherwise, let's pretend that's the situation. So the goal, so the goal there is to obviously have a runner on in scoring position, and then you have two chances to knock them home right. and tie the game up. You know, I feel like in this day and age, with players striking out, more than ever, with fewer balls being put into play. That's even a worse gamble than in years past. And I I kept seeing a lot of people on Twitter saying like, well, if only Munoz knew how to bunt, then we'd be fine. Well, I'm sure he does know how to bunt. Um, If he doesn't know how to bunt, then that's a really bad call to send someone up there who doesn't know how to bunt um, um, to do that. But kind of going back to, and this relates to what I just said, also, in this day and age with, you know, especially relief pitchers throwing so hard, it's probably harder to get bunts down than it yes. has been in years past. <laughs> I mean, these guys are throwing the crap out of the ball. I, I bet it's not as easy as people think to get a simple bunt down. Um, and, and so maybe if it was a tie game in the ninth, I would have been fine with that. Even then, I think I would have been kind of not feeling it. Just because I almost don't like a bunt unless it really is trying to get on base, but not when you need more than one run. And I just think that's with with eight outs, with six, excuse me, with six outs remaining, with you know what we just talked about, how hard it is to even get a ball in play these days to waste an out like that on a game that you really can easily win. I just think that is very bad managing. I should have been very bad, I, a very I, bad decision. Yeah, yeah. Every manager is going to make very bad decisions throughout the course of the year, but he seemed to have a few um, in a short a period of time. I, I <laughs> so didn't did like I didn't like the intentional Walker Schwarber, um, you know, in that 
game that got away from them with the Cubs that they should have won, but we don't need to go into that either. <laughs> no, uh, but it was interesting with that Munoz bunt because I was, I mean, my my feelings about bunting are, are abundantly clear, I think, at this point, but uh, that didn't seem to make any sense to me, especially with a guy who is basically on the team because he can hit a little bit. So you take the bat out of his hands, you give up an out, and it just didn't see. And then not only that, but it it doesn't go well. But I think a couple of things. First of all, to your point, I think getting a bunt down is actually a lot harder than most people think it is. And particularly for guys who spend most of their time actually working on their their swing when they're trying to hit the ball <laughs> yeah. to then adapt to this. Oh, yeah. no, now I'm going to bunt. It's a totally different thing. So if I can say something real quick, I'm glad you said that because in this day and age, when it's not even a strategy that's used as often, I wonder if they practice it less. Yeah. But I you know which, in a, on a podcast with, with Daniel Shapton on Sunday night, um, I basically compared it to having the, you know, eighth man off your bench, come in to shoot free throws when they don't ever practice shooting free throws. Like it's not easy just because it's a free throw. <laughs> you still have to practice it if you're going to be any good at it. And mm -hmm. if that's not what they spend their time doing, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a tough ask. I think against the sort of relievers, like you talked about anyway, a guy who is there really because he can hit. We saw a little bit of that in the game tonight. And then you ask him to, to basically sacrifice bunt, which is something that, I don't know how much time they spend on, but it can't be that much because none of them are very good at it. And then it does give away the out. But the other thing is, after the game, I just talked about how much I appreciate Mike Schultz's explanation of most things in a game, whether they went well or they went poorly. His explanation for that bunt was basically like, we wanted to get a runner in scoring position. Uh. And that's probably the most frustrated I've ever been <laughs> with Mike Schilt in any decision that he's ever made because it, it's such a, it's such an old school by the book playing for one run. It didn't seem to fit the, the situation or the roster that he had available to him. And that was, that was pretty frustrating. So yeah, I mean, every manager is going to have those moments where they, they think they're making a really smart decision and it doesn't work out and it looks even worse than it would have otherwise. But I'm not sure that one would have looked great, even if it did work out. <laughs> as far as the team as a whole, I mean, we've talked about the pitching. We've talked about the offense. We've talked about the managing. They just need to have a better week. And I guess maybe we can wrap it up with this as far as this is concerned. Is this just a bad week or is this maybe revealing some... <laughs> some character flaws of this team that we just yeah. hadn't seen so far. I, I'm going to keep my answer short. I think the pitching really is a problem. I think the offense should be good enough to steal some games um, that they normally would have lost because of inadequate starting pitching. And so if the offense kind of returns to, you know, the way it was two weeks ago, then I feel pretty good about this team. If not, if we're going to be relying a lot on starting pitching, then I think we're going to I think we're going to be in some trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that for either one of us hasn't really changed since the offseason when we felt like the starting rotation had uh, some question marks if not some holes and that certainly seems to be the case. 
we don't really talk a whole lot about the bullpen, but for me, you know, a bullpen's going to have a bad game here or there. I'm not super worried about that at this point. Plus, they will be getting reinforcements in the form of Carlos Martinez potentially for this weekend series in Texas. But we will talk about all of that next week. Alex, mm-hmm. it is time for the chirp of the week. All right, let's. Ooh, you know what? Um, should I first update the NL uh, batting? Oh, yes. uh, batting let's race? do that. Okay. Uh, you know, I talked about last week. I was going to get into the NL batting race because Paul DeYoung was, I believe, fifth at the time, and uh, or maybe even third. Well, it hasn't been a good week for Paul DeYoung <laughs> and uh, the NL batting race. Partly because he had a bit of a down week, but also because a few guys just kind of shoehorned their way in because they had the requisite plate appearances all of a sudden to uh, <laughs> to show up. On the leaderboard, uh, you know, t- to qualify for a batting title, you have to average what I think three point one plate appearances per game. Right? Uh, that comes out to five hundred two plate appearances on a season. I think they could lower that. Um, well, why? I don't know why we're stuck with that number, but it seems a little high, especially in this day and age with like substitutions and players playing it all over the diamond. Like I believe last year, the Cardinals only had four players who qualified for a batting title the season before that only had three. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like 450 plate appearances would be a nice, even number, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Paul DeYoung is now currently ninth. Well, heading in today, he was currently ninth in National League and batting with a 321 batting average, but, and uh, Daniel Shoptal was uh, good enough to point this out to me. The, the one we love Jose Martinez is now qualified, has the requisite plate appearances to qualify uh, for a batting title at this point in the season. He's batting 339, which is third in the National League, uh, behind Jeff McNeil of the Mets and Cody Bellinger, who's batting 407. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if Bellinger keeps this up, I'm going to forget about Paul DeYoung, no matter, and Jose Martinez, no matter how well they're doing, and see if uh, Cody Bellinger can bat 400, because that would be infinitely more exciting than. Um, Anything uh, those guys might do. We, obviously, that probably won't happen. But still, to be batting, what, 407 uh, through mid-May? That's pretty pretty impressive. That's after, that, let's see, he had 173 plate appearances uh, heading into today. And he's batting 407. That's incredible. It's not bad. No, yeah. it's not bad at all. So, <laughs> chirp of the week, um, because, you know, this is like our doom and gloom episode. The Cardinals are, uh, uh, before tonight, playing lousy. Um, this is like our disintegration album episode, I guess. Uh, I wanted to look at a season when the Cardinals were lousy. Uh, and I looked at, uh, in 1978, they had their worst winning percentage. They won 69 games. They lost 93 for a 426 winning percentage. Um, that was their worst winning percentage since 1924. Now, you've probably... Or maybe I've heard me say that 1990 is the only time the Cardinals have finished last since 1918. And that is true. But in 1990, they actually won 70 games. And in 1978, even though they were 69 and 93, the Mets were 66 and 96. So the Mets were actually worse. So they didn't finish last in 1978. And that's why it still stretches all the way back to 1918. Anyway, I wanted to look at who was good on that 1978 team on that lousy team that couldn't even reach 70 wins. Um, and just by going by baseball references war leaderboard, the top player on the team was John starting pitcher, John Denny. Uh, part of that is because he threw 234 innings at a 2.96 ERA. 
Um, and then Ted Simmons, who had a 148 OPS plus, uh, 5.6 war player. Third was Pete Vukovic. Uh, he was probably actually the best player on the team. He threw almost 200 innings. He had a 2.54 ERA and a 2.60 FIP. He wasn't quite worth as much as John Denny, just partly because he didn't throw as many innings. And rounding out the top five was Gary Templeton and then George Hendrick. But, but I want to talk a little bit more about Pete uh, Vukovic. I believe that's I believe I'm pronouncing his uh, last name correctly. But he so he was on the Cardinals for a couple seasons. Um, and then, you know, I don't know if we consider this a bad trade or not. It's kind of hard to tell. But after, I believe, the 1980 season, we traded him. We traded him and Raleigh Fingers, who was like on the Cardinals for like a couple of days. This was when Whitey Herzog became like the GM and just started like, you know, trading everyone. Um, we traded him, Raleigh Fingers, and Ted Simmons to the Milwaukee Brewers for David Green, Dave LaPointe, Sixto Lescano and Larry Sorensen. Uh, not exactly huge names, but I believe we did flip Dave LaPointe to the Giants as uh, part of the Jack Clark trade. Now, Vukovic went to the Brewers, and another reason why you might know him is because he was the starting pitcher for the Brewers in the 1982 World Series in Game 3 when William McGee hit two home runs off him. And he was also the starting pitcher in game seven. Um, he didn't get a decision. I believe he went like five and two-thirds innings, gave up a couple runs. Um, but the Cardinals kind of won that game late and then won that World Series late. So he didn't factor in too much at all in that game. But you might also know him, Tara. Have you ever seen the movie Major League? Of course. Okay, so Major League is probably my favorite baseball movie. Uh, some people don't love it as much i think just because the premise has been played so much we're just kind of a bunch of ragtag losers figure out how to win um certainly was an original premise but i think they do it perfectly and it always kind of reminded me exactly of how i feel like for better or for worse baseball players actually act <laughs> it seemed very real uh and i always thought that baseball highlights seemed passable enough um for a baseball movie and that's not always an easy thing to do and uh, the dialogue was always, I thought, pretty hilarious. But anyway, uh, Pete Vukovic, what, do you remember Clue Haywood? The first baseman, kind of the villain, the first baseman sure. for the Yankees. Do you remember him? That's him. Ah. <laughs> he, yeah, he was playing. Uh, and he played it quite well, too. As a pitcher, he, he uh, very well pulled off the villain first baseman for the uh, New York Yankees. He has that famous line to... Uh, when he's batting, when Jake Taylor's catching, when he says, how's your wife and my kids? Uh, that's one of the reasons why maybe some people don't like this movie as much. It can be quite crude at some point. But yeah, he's, I don't know what the story is. Maybe they just thought part of the way to make the movie look good is to get actual baseball players and kind of these bit roles because they know what they're doing. They know how to look good in uniforms. They know how to swing bats and throw balls. Um, and so, uh, that's what Pete uh, Vukovic did. He he played Clue Haywood. Um, he also won the Cy Young in 1982. I should have mentioned that as well with the Brewers. So we can debate whether or not that was a uh, good trade or not. Probably wasn't, but you know we certainly came out ahead on more good trades than bad trades that decade with Ozzie Smith for Templeton and also the Willie McGee trade. 
If you want to know about other lousy teams, I mentioned 1990. Probably the best player on that team was Willie McGee, and that's when he won the batting title uh, while he was actually um, in the American League by that point because we had flipped him uh, at the deadline for Felix Jose, but he had the uh, he had enough plate appearances to qualify for the batting title, which he won with a 335 average. And yeah, your 1978 Cardinals, 69 and 93, winning percentage 426. They were lousy. I'm happy we haven't seen a team that bad, uh, I guess, in my lifetime and uh, for a very uh, long time even before that. So there you go. So feel a little bit better yeah, about I'll, what you fact, saw I'll in the last you, week because the Cardinals aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you where that season went bad. They were at one point... 14 and 16, which, you know, early in the season, which isn't great. But, you know, after 30 games, if you're 14 and 16, there's still plenty of time to pretty much do whatever you right. want. Well, they lost 11 games in a row at Ooh. that point. So they went from 14 to 16 to 14 to 27. And at one point, they lost three games in a row all by walk-offs, uh, two games to the Padres and one game to the Giants. So that's a pretty bad <laughs> So stretch. it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, it can always it could be worse. It could be worse. Yes. For sure. Well, hopefully you learned something in that, and now we all are going to go rewatch Major League. That's yeah, that's the moral I hope, of that I story. I hope I pronounce his name right. <laughs> Vukovic. I'm almost positive. Well, that's it. if if it's not, yeah, maybe someone on not. maybe someone on the internet knows. We can yeah. find out as people listen. So. That will do it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in again. Uh, we always love when you guys comment on the show and chat with us on Twitter and share your agreements or your disagreements with our assessment as we go along through the week. So make sure that you're following me on Twitter. I'm at Tara Wellman. He's at AlexCard79. You can follow the Birds on the Black Twitter account as well as subscribe or follow or like or whatever it is that you do to the birds on the black podcast feed on whatever app you listen to us on and we will be back with you next week to hopefully talk about well a better week but maybe not such a gloomy week if nothing else so we will talk to you then